Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Those of you who are starting a new year at the university, I encourage you to get to know the Alex and Danny McNeil and the other people who are involved in the campus ministry here. And uh, be disciplined in your attendance at church Sundays and also in the small group and, and uh, during on campus during the meetings. Um, it's really, really important that you give yourself to the fellowship of believers and um, prayer, worship, and the academy has never been a neutral environment, never. You study the history of universities across the world, and um, they have always presented, um, well, Jesus, you know, back in the New Testament, it talks about the foolishness of the cross, how it's foolishness to the Greeks. And uh, so make sure that you give yourself to the people of God and that you love the people of God first in your life, not money, not your degree, not your studies, okay? So a little word from a father to you as you begin your academic year. This morning is a great text for the beginning of a new academic year. We've been studying this summer the... uh, um, the first 10 Psalms, and last year we were going through Genesis. We return to Genesis now, and we're going to start with uh, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, which is the biography of Abraham. And we know a few things about Abraham from the end of chapter 11. Let me read the last verses of chapter 11 before we read our text for the morning. In Genesis 11, beginning with verse 27, it says, Now these are the records of the generations of Terah. And so what you have here is you have the transition from from Adam, Noah, and, and the first fathers of the human race. Then you move here to the fathers of the covenant. And so you see the, 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 uh, shall I say, the decadence of the ancient world as you watch from Adam the whole way through to Abraham because you see that things were so awful at the time of Noah within a short time after creation that it was so awful and you see the decline just simply in Adam's rebellion against God then you see it with uh, Cain killing his brother Abel and then you see with Noah things are so bad that God wipes everybody out except Noah and his family well now we've gone through more generations and we see that thing, things are, 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 are uh, similarly bad because we read at the end of uh, Genesis 11 and then we see a statement about Genesis 11 in Joshua. It says, now these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nashor, Nahor, took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. And then it says about Abram's wife, Sarai was barren. Now, if you're wondering who Abram and Sarai are, Abram is Abraham. Sarai is Sarah. Their names change through the story, so they're the same uh, people. And it says the name of uh, Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, if you skip forward to Isaiah 51, 1 and 2, you read this about Abram. Hearken to me, ye that follow after righteousness, ye that seek the Lord. Look unto the rock whence you are hewn, and to the hole of the pit whence you are digged. Look unto Abraham your father, and unto Sarah that bear you. 
And so those that follow after righteousness are exhorted to look to the rock they're hewn from and to the hole of the pit from which we've been dug. All right? Now, it's not very complimentary. And then in parallel construction, it says, look to Abraham, your father, and Sarah that bore you. And so Abraham and Sarah are the, the rock from which we are hewn. We are the pit from which we have been dug. And then in Joshua 24, 2, we read, Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, from ancient times, your fathers lived beyond the river, namely, and there we see Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and what does it say? It says they served other gods. And so the first thing as we read our text this morning for us to recognize is that Abram was an idolater. Abraham's father was an idolater. Abraham's grandfather was an idolater. And so I want you to keep that in your minds right away as we begin to study Abraham. Don't ever think that the reason that Abram was called by God was because Abraham or his father or his grandfather was righteous. No, they weren't. It says right here, they served other gods and there is only one God. And we have such a tendency to turn every story into a story about, you know, the excellence of the people that, have, that think good things happen to, you know. Well, they must have deserved it, you know. No, no. Abram, nowhere does Scripture say he deserved it, all right? We'll get into what it does say about Abram. Now, with that as a background, let's pick up the story as it's told in Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his nephew and all their possessions which they had accumulated and the persons which they had acquired in Haran and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Morah. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give you this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abram journeyed on continuing toward the Negev. And this is the word of the Lord. Now, did you notice what it said at the end of chapter 11 that I read to you a couple minutes ago? It says that um, at the very end, Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. And so we have absolutely no idea why it was that Abram's father decided that he was going to leave Ur of the Chaldees. Um, there's no mention of God telling him to do this. We just know he did it. But we also know that he didn't fulfill it. We know he left Ur of the Chaldees, but we know he didn't go to Canaan as he in intended, but he settled rather in Haran. And that's where the story picks up with Abram. He's not living back in the Ur of the Chaldees. He's now living in Haran. And we would have a tendency because we look at the Mideast today and we see the relative lack of sophistication, particularly on those who um, are animal people, you know, that, that uh, keep goats, keep sheep and stuff. We would think that Abram must have been a very, very backward kind of fellow, you know, sort of Stone Age kind of with tents out in the middle of the desert. 
and no written anything, no rule of law, no, no sophistication, certainly. And uh, if we thought that, we would be wrong. Because archaeologists have done a lot of work in that place. And what we find out, in fact, about where Abram was from is that Abram likely was a citizen of a very, very sophisticated, highly developed civilization. Uh, he lived in the Babylonian Empire, which at the time, around the year 2000 BC, was at its peak in cultural and political splendor. Um, Ur, where Abram's ancestors came from, had been highly developed for five to six centuries. Five to six hundred years. This had been a sophisticated civilization. That's the amount of time from the Reformation to today, the time of Luther to today. And so this, this civilization had reading, it had writing, it had the fine arts, it had sophisticated legal codes, it had precious stones, beauty. And these were Abram's contemporaries. Not only was the Babylonian Empire in general and Ur specifically highly civilized places, but Abram himself was anything but an ignorant nomad. When God spoke to Abram, Abram was a very successful husbandman, farmer uh, dealing with cattle. He lived near a large city. His flocks were huge. His servants were numerous enough to fight an army when Abram had need for them to fight an army. And likely his family was part of the ruling elite. So Abram was living in sophisticated comfort and he was 75 years old and he was ready to relax. He had done well for himself and it was time for him to enjoy the golden years of enjoying all the things that he had been able to accrue. And yet we read that Abram lived in the midst of idolatry. Scripture tells us, as I read in Joshua 24:2, that Abram's father served other gods. Now, who were these other gods? Well, at the time, uh, there were a number of them, but one of the main ones was the moon. The moon was a god. And people would name their children after their gods, and that's how Abram's father got his name. In Semitic, the name Terah means Mooney. Abram's fathers served other gods. Now, we come to the account of Abram itself. And this is the first thing we read, now the Lord. Now, as I've said before, anytime you see uppercase Lord or, or small caps, what that means is Yahweh. That means that's the specific name for the only true God who revealed himself to the patriarchs and who revealed himself to uh, the children of Israel. All right? So this is not just God. This is the Lord God, which means Yahweh. And it distinguishes the true God who made the heavens and the earth from all the gods of the ancient world. Every time you see that word Lord, you're not just thinking the Jewish God, you're thinking the only God who reveals himself with his name, which is Yahweh. And so it says now Yahweh said, all right, the only God. Yahweh said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house. And that's the first thing for us to hit hard. Notice that it's in an ascending order of intensity. First, you leave your fatherland, and then you leave your relatives. Excuse me. I was gonna sneeze. Somebody must have yelled at me just then. <laughs> So you leave your fatherland, you leave your country, and then you leave your relatives, and then you leave what? You leave your father. And this is about how God deals with us in our lives, isn't it? There's an increasing jealousy on the part of God. He will brook no competitors in our affections. And so he starts with our, our homeland, 
And all of a sudden, the American flag just doesn't mean to us what it used to mean. Right? And how many of us have gone through that in our lifetime? I can remember days of innocence about America. There's no innocence left. You know, the barn door's shut. The horse is gone. And so we've had to give up our love for our homeland. It doesn't mean we don't have affection for it. Anybody who has ever had an American passport and has gone out of the country and then come back in knows what it is to have affection for America, right? Tried to be shaken down at all the countries in Africa. Any of you been through that? And then you come into the U.S. and it just looks like, well... I guess I'm something. You never knew what you were until you went to other countries with an American passport and then came back to the U.S. And so you die to your fatherland, you die to your homeland, you die to your country, and then God says, now I want you to die to your relatives. And it gets more difficult. And it gets more difficult because we hold more tightly to our relatives than we hold to our country. And so we look at our relatives, and it always happens with us at family reunion. And as the years go by at family reunion, you realize that that the roads done diverged. You know, two roads diverged in the yellow wood. and, And you also realize that you have taken the road less traveled. Because it it's like a woman, an old friend was saying to us last night, you know, I'm just here minding my own business. And her relatives just attack her. You know, she's just sh- sh- keeping her mouth shut. And her relatives just attack her. And why? Well, because her relatives, and I know this will be a shock to you, but they hate God. And she represents God to them. Very weakly. Not with, you know, any attitude. Just... I belong to God. You know how some of you are with your families? I just belong to God. I'm minding my own business. Bam, they're in your face. Uh, You know, you can remember many times where somehow it's come into a conversation with somebody you've just met that you're a Christian. And immediately they are just in your face. And most of us, what we think about that is, well, that happened because so so many Christians in America are so political. They're in a culture war. And so they've alienated all these pagans. And if people would just keep their mouths shut and mind their own business, then I wouldn't have to be slapped in the face by every God-hater that comes along. And my response is, dream on. It's not because Christians are culture warriors. It's because Christians serve God. And that's always been the way it is. That's why Jesus is constantly saying that you have to hate your father and your mother and your brother and your sister and your mom and your dad if you're going to follow him. And he doesn't mean that you have to go around being in their face. What he means is there can't be any question where your allegiance is. And so God starts with your nation, your fatherland, your homeland, and then he moves to your relatives. You go to family reunions and like you're, you're supposed to defend God. You know, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't come to my family reunion to have to defend God and his honor. You know, and then your father. And if there is one thing that we see over and over again in a university community, it's how parents do their dead level best to make their children fulfill their expectations for their children. I'll get to you in a second, but let's set you on the side for now, okay? Jody is our chief musician. And Jody has disappointed his parents in their expect. Now, hold on, just, just hold on for a second. Just hold on. Don't worry, I got you covered, okay? All right, but I'm going to be talking about me, not you, but you'll know, you know. So let's first talk about parents that just simply have no faith, right? Parents that have no faith, when their child goes off to campus and that child is given by God a call, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that child hears the call of God and knows that God is true, though all men are liars. And that child sets their feet on the straight and narrow path of loving God. Immediately, 
the polarization with their parents is absolutely uh, louder than a freight train coming to an intersection. It's just unbelievably intense. Why? Well, because our children are raised by us as parents to fulfill their aspirations. I have aspirations, and you as my child are going to fulfill my aspirations. I have designs on you. I don't have you just so I can give my life to you. I have you so you can give your life to me. Okay? Now that that's clear. And so a child says, no, I'm going to honor God and I'm going to repent. The minute that happens, the tension with your father and your mother. And this is why Jesus says you have to hate your father and mother. It's not because Jesus doesn't want us honoring our parents. The fifth commandment is honor your father and mother. But the fact is, whenever our father and mother come between us and faith in the true God, there is no question what the choice is. As I've been preparing this sermon, I've thought and thought and thought about the Chinese students who have been a part of our fellowship. And a number of them have been put under great pressure by their parents and other things, and they've just, what we call it, is apostatized. They have chosen their parents over God and have turned their back on God. And these decisions are being made by students all the time. We had a young man in our congregation a couple of years ago who was raised in one of our elders' homes, and one day he asked me to come out to their house half an hour out of town that he wanted to talk to me. We went on a walk and he said, I don't believe, I haven't believed for quite some time, and I don't know how to tell my father and my mother. And, you know, you get to know this guy, he's a programmer, he's a coder, you know what, everybody know what a coder is. Now, how much pride do coders have? Yeah, they got an awful lot of pride. Any of you who are coders want to cop to that? Okay, Aaron, do you have pride? Okay, Forrest, you, oh, you don't have any pride. One of the sad things about the church today is that the church lies to people and the church tells people that they can have Jesus generally, but they don't need to have him specifically. That they can obey him generally, but they don't have to obey him specifically. That they can, um, that they can honor him generally without honoring him specifically. That they can have both their cake and eat it too. And so in the church today, there's all this talk about pursuit of excellence. You've heard it? As Christians, the main call God's given us is to pursue excellence, right? We all know that, right? That to be a Christian and to pursue excellence are the same thing, right? You all know this. And so the pursuit of excellence usurps the throne of God. And to pursue our dreams and our mother's dreams and to pursue the throne of God is the same thing. And the church never calls us to choose between our father and mother and God. And God said to Abraham, what? God said to him, get up and leave your country, leave your relatives, leave your father's house. And so if the church ever tells us to leave something, what the church tells us to leave is that God today is the kind of God that would ever make you leave your homeland, your, your relatives, that Abram did that so you don't ever have to. And that's the whole point of the Old Testament. They went through that so you don't ever have to. And then that's the point of John the Baptist. They repented so you don't ever have to. And then that's the point of the Pauline epistles. The Apostle Paul wrote that kind of letter to those kinds of churches so that we don't ever become those kinds of churches. And so we don't ever have to hear sermons like that, you see? And so scripture never applies to us. We never have to choose God over our country, God over our relatives, and God over our father. God came to Abram and God said, get up 
and leave. Now, remember how I said earlier that I was going to get to you guys in a second. So here I'm showing that we have to make a choice between our godless parents and God. We can't have our godless parents and God because neither our parents nor God will be satisfied with that. Right? But here's a weird thing. It's also true for Christian parents. <laughs> okay? And I'm old enough that I can, I, can, I can cop to this. So Michael is one of our children. Michael. She's not here. She's over in the Philippines with her uh, boho husband and boho children. <laughs> you know what boho, you don't know what boho means. Boho means bohemian. Uh, I don't know how to describe it. Ask somebody afterwards what boho means. Don't you think Michael and Ben are boho? Yeah, yeah, they're boho, right? <laughs> but listen, Michael is also very bright. And because I'm a pastor, I have lived for years with intellectuals looking down on me and thinking that if I really was bright, I wouldn't be a pastor. Because that's what every intellectual thinks about pastors. And so I have just been waiting to unleash my children on all those proud intellectuals to look down on me. Right? Right? Do you understand this? I know I'm wicked, but come on, give me some love. You understand this? Okay. And along came Michael. And see, Joseph was pretty good. Heather was pretty good. But Michael, you know, Michael, Michael was, was after the mess and a woman. And I'm telling you, we all know that you can get far, far, farther as a woman than you can as a man today. And so I just thought, yeah, they all think I'm a sexist and they all think I'm stupid. So I'm going to show them that my daughter can whoop them all. Right? You all knew I thought this, right? Right? Yeah, my family says they knew it. Yeah. And then what happens is God tells, God, God has some nasty man come along and say he wants to marry that Michael. And we can't have that because Michael was going to prove that I'm an intellectual and that I'm actually as egalitarian as a biblical man can be. And so Michael comes to us and she wants to get married. And guess what? I don't want her to get married. I want her to finish college. She forgets that it's about me. <laughs> right? It's about what her GPA is, what scholarship she gets. You know, let's first make it clear everything she's giving up before she gives it up. Isn't that the point of a Christian life? You want to die having shown everybody what you could have been. Right? <laughs> so we have a family council. It's the only family council we've ever had. We're not that... We're not that kind of family, <laughs> you know? And the family council was a bunch of idiots sitting in the corner of some room. I don't even remember where it was. It was up in Michigan. Okay, we went out to a restaurant, I think. And we told Michael she couldn't come. That was, that was, that was the really special part. She was livid. And so it's people like Hannah. You were there. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you were there. And... And Heather and Doug and me and that woman I'm married to. And was anybody else there? Taylor. <laughs> was Taylor there? <laughs> I don't know if our youngest son was there. Anyhow, Michael was very upset about this. And we were talking about whether or not she should be able to get married. And afterwards, she came up to me and she said, Daddy, I'm only doing what you told me to do. Well, I knew exactly what that meant. That meant that Michael, despite her intellectual capacity, despite her good flout pulling or flute plowing or, or flautist 
Yes, flute skills. Yes, despite her flute skills. That Michael had her heart on pilgrimage already, and she wanted to be a wife and a mother. And so her top priority was not proving that her father was smart and not a sexist. And you all know in a university community how it goes over for a man's daughter to get married before she graduates from college and then to have children. Right? You're not going to plead stupid, are you? And you just get humiliated. And then people accuse you of being even more of an anti-intellectual. And you realize that you are the stumbling block for your daughter honoring God. Daddy, I'm only doing what you taught me to do. And you have to face yourself and say, what am I doing? I'm calling men and women to honor God by giving themselves to sexual purity. I'm telling them that it's better to marry than to burn. I'm telling them that there is no higher calling than to be a husband and a wife, a father and a mother. And then my daughter has a Christian man who wants her hand in marriage. And I say, well, you know, go ahead and, go ahead and, you know, complete college and then we'll think about, it. well, at least complete two years of school. Now, don't talk to me about the temptations you face. Don't tell me you want to be a mother. It's a waste of your intellect. It's a waste of your beauty. And God said to Abram, get up and leave your homeland and leave your relatives and leave your father. And so, yes, our children discipline us by choosing God over us as Christian parents. So those of you who have young children, fasten your safety belt. Because very soon, your own idolatries are going to be fighting for the souls of your children. And you're going to look at it and you're going to say, that's me. But when God comes to you and when God tells you that he wants you to get up and to leave your homeland and to leave your relatives and to leave your father, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? You say, well, God doesn't say that anymore. And I say, oh, yes, he does. He said it to Michael. He's, I have no question he said it to each of our children. Because if God had never called my children to leave me, they would be godless. And you say, well, no, you're a pastor. You're calling them to follow God. And I say, I'm a sinner. Children have to choose between their parents and God all the time. You all know this. This isn't true for unbelievers and not true for believers. Nobody, nobody can come between you and God. Nobody. Not your wife, not your husband. And you say, oh, but wives are supposed to submit to their husbands. Yes, except insofar as they are required to choose their husband over God. It's one of the most scandalous things you have to do in, in pastoral counseling is to call husbands and wives to obey God rather than their spouse. And especially if it's the woman. As you know, you've just gotten done telling a woman that, you know, everybody in the church that the order of creation is not thrown out today even though we're post uh, the French Revolution. Egalité. And then you come around and tell them that their husband is destroying the faith of their children and is harming them. And they must stop allowing him to do that. Not telling him to divorce. And boy, I'm telling you, it's just so difficult. But this is what God said. The Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house. And then, to make it worse, God does not tell Abram where he's to go. All he says to him is to a place that I'm going to show you. And this just does not work with, you know, people like us. You know, we know 
exactly what we're going to do every day. And there might be, you know, like yesterday I ran into Josh Congrove and, you know, his poor wife and his son are out in front of Menards with his car broken down because Josh decided the last time he was going to buy gas, he'd only buy three gallons. And pretty soon Josh comes up with this little gas can and pouring sweat, you know, and in front of Menards, he puts a little gallon of gas in and then it starts and then he's going to go off and buy another three gallons, you know. <laughs> Listen, I drive a gay Prius and I've run out of gas twice. <laughs> but I mean, what a ridiculous level on which we feel vulnerable in life today. The worst thing that can happen to us is that our wife and our son are in front of Menards and they run into the pastor and, you know, you, you get, have to sweat. We are so, so focused on security and on control. And what that really means is we're so focused on ourselves. We are focused on who has offended us, who owed us what that we did not get, how our boss treats us, whether that grade was the right grade. We calculate our profit day after day. We make sure that we make the right quarterly payments to the IRS and to the state. And our accountants get it down to the penny. And this is our life. We don't even want a vacation. That has any risk. We want our vacations planned before we set out. We want to know where we're going to be every night. If we camp, we want to know what campground. We want to know what hookups. We want to know down to the site. You take a, a, a federal campground site now. You go on. You look at it, you know, and, and, and you say, well, not that one. Well, this one, you know, and pretty soon they'll have reviews for outhouses at federal <laughs> campgrounds. How do you follow God when that's your life. How do you do it? You have your life entirely planned out. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's to pursue excellence. What is the pursuit of excellence but to pursue security? And those people in our midst who have any ruptures in the predictability of their life and in their financial well-being, we all go... If they'd listened to me, that wouldn't have happened. My dad used to refer to this text as God interrupting Abram's life. And then my dad would say, God is the great interrupter. And you think about how much we want our cars to start. We don't want a bad smell in them. We want the air conditioning to work. We keep track of how many pennies our gas costs, how much per kilowatt hour we're paying for electricity, whether we have gas or we need to get propane. And there's absolutely no place for discipleship. Jesus says, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And we're thinking, well, you mean like, from seven and a half cents per kilowatt hour to 12 and a half cents, I'm going to get solar panels. That'll teach them. You know, where is our discipleship today? Where do we obey God that there's risk? Where do we obey God that we're going someplace that he hasn't told us? Where? Where is it today? God says to Abram, to the land which I will show you. Calvin on this says, 
He says, we must overcome all our desires and all our lusts as if we were getting out of ourselves. I just love that. Five centuries ago, Calvin says, this is all about us getting out of ourselves. And Facebook had never been invented. Calvin says, this story tells us we got to get out of ourselves. All right? And then he says this, he, he says, let us be ready to depart as birds on a branch. Pew! That's how quick they are, let alone hummingbirds. They're unbelievably fast. They have their claws fixed on a twig and the slightest movement of your head. Even though you're on the other side of a, of a, of a glass window, you just move a little bit and that bird is gone. And he says, that's how we're supposed to be under the authority of God. We're supposed to be ready to depart as birds on a branch. And then he says, let us be like vagabonds. Now, you know what a vagabond is? A vagabond is the very thing that we're determined not to be. Remember the song, don't have to live like a refugee. None of us want to be vagabonds. We want to read about them. We want to, you know, study the history of Haight-Ashbury and Woodstock, and, but we don't want to be there. You know, I haven't found anybody camping out in mud. And yet Calvin says this is precisely what it is to be a Christian. It's to be a vagabond. He says, God does not tell Abram where he's to dwell, so Abram leaves his country without knowing where he is going. And God keeps him in suspense, toying with him, so to speak. This is what Calvin says. Then he says, we must bring to heal our weariness. Now, what is, what is Calvin saying there? We must bring to heal our weariness. Well, because we don't teach our children to obey us, and because we don't even train our dogs, we don't know what it means to be brought to heal. So let me tell you what it means to be brought to heal. How many of you have been out to the, uh, to the, to the trestle in Greene County? Okay, right on the trestle out there now are men who are replacing all the railroad ties on the trestle. And so Meryl and I were there a couple days ago and got talking to them and they showed us the harness that they wear whenever they work on the trestle. Trestle's real high. If you haven't been out to see it, go out to see it. And then at the end of the harness is this tiny little thin uh, cable that'll hold 5,000 pounds, which means it'll hold me. And then at the end of the cable is this little clamp, big clamp, heavy clamp, heavy steel. And you look at it, and it's like the, it's like the opposite of a rail that the wheels travel on. And what that piece of steel is, is you clamp it around the rail, and then you put a pin through, and it will not let go of the rail, and the rail ain't going nowhere. And so if you fall off while you're working, there's a, a, a quick grab, uh, whatever you call it, cinch something, you know, inside. And instantly, it'll stop the cable from, from being let out. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to work. And it's tied to this piece that goes over the rail. And so you don't get hurt. You're stopped within a foot or two. Now, as you work, that piece of steel on the rail is able to freely follow you. Up and down the tracks, it follows you. You know what they call it? They call it the puppy. And that's what Calvin means by see, saying, we must bring to heal. It's right there. In other words, we must discipline so that it stays right at our heel, we must bring to heel our wariness and not inquire too cautiously into various situations as we think and talk and make plans. This is Calvin's sermon on this text. And he says the application of this sermon is don't be so engineerish. Don't be so particular. Don't be so obsessed. Don't be so absolutely swallowed in your plans, in your schedules. 
Oh, no, 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 I can't have fellowship on Sunday because I have to study on Sunday. This is always, what, well, a, a certain ethnic group that I won't mention. But the entire 22 years I've been in Bloomington, they won't fellowship on Sunday. And so guess what? When there's a contest between God and their parents and their grandparents, guess what? God loses. Why? Because their heart has never been bonded to the family of God. They've never learned that in Christ there's no male nor female, Jew nor Greek, Asian or American. And Calvin says we have to stop our wariness, stop our caution, stop our thinking and talking and making plans. And then he says, for there are those who will never make a move until they know where they are to go, what they are to do, and what the good outcome will be. <laughs> now that's funny. There's not one of you here, well, maybe there's one of you, but not more than three of you here who don't know precisely what the good outcome is going to be for this day. Right? You've already thought it through. You've been daydreaming about the good outcome that's going to come after you get done having to listen to this sermon. And there's just nothing but good outcomes. What is childhood? But learning that life is filled with good outcomes that you can look forward to. Right? Christians are just chipper. There's so many good outcomes. It reminds me of a New Yorker cartoon years ago where a guy was sitting, talking to the bartender, and he said, I had a good childhood. I've had a, a happy marriage. My life has been happy. And then I'm going to die and go to heaven. <laughs> it's like, this is the church. I've had a happy childhood, I've had a happy adolescence, I have a happy marriage, and my church is happy. I went to a happy church last week. It's happy. Very, very happy. Southernly happy. Bless their hearts. <laughs> and then I'm going to die and go to a happy heaven. And God said to Abram, give up your plans. Give up your schedule. Give up your Gantt chart. Give it up. Why? Because God will not brook any competitors. God is a jealous God. And I'm not going to tell you where to go. I'm simply telling you where to leave. And about this time, we say to ourselves, no, I'm not going to do it. There has to be something in it for me. But God lowers himself to us. And so God says this to him. God doesn't just tell him to leave and that he'll show him where he's, he's going to go. But God says this. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So there you have it. But it's not real specific. It's just like, you know, I'll bless you. I'll make you a great nation. Well, what, what does that mean to me? I want to know what's in it for me now. You know, I'll make you a great nation. Oh, yeah, right. My wife is past childbearing. She's, she's barren. You can make me a great nation. Who cares? What about right here and now? And I will bless you. Oh, how are you going to bless me? I don't have children and you're telling me to leave everything I love. I'll make your name great. Yeah, right, you know. Here I am in the midst of civilization, a sophisticated city, and you're going to take me into the boonies in Canaan and make my name great. Yeah, the boonies are where every man gets a great name. And so you shall be a blessing. Well, you know something? Right about now at 75, I'd rather receive blessings. I'm tired of being a blessing to others. I've worked hard to build up the servants, to build up the wealth, to build up the flocks that I have. And I would prefer to receive blessings at this stage in my life. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. Well, there's something. 
you know, that if people are nice to me, God is going to identify with me so closely that he will be nice to those who are nice to me. Then it translates that I will curse those who curse you, but the word is not curse in Hebrew. The word is dis. You know the word dis? Anybody that disses you, I'm going to curse. In other words, it's, it's somebody who speaks evil of. It's not cursing. It's not that level. It's slightly under. And so it's clear that God says, anybody that disses you, I'm going to get real intense and curse them. Isn't that interesting? You know how God says that we're the apple of his eye? You know how tender you are about your eye? Mary Lee or somebody was describing to me recently. Yeah, Mary Lee. She was, what was she doing? Oh, yes, I remember what she was doing. <laughs> Is Mary Lee here? Oh, she's back there. She can't hear me, I don't think. So we had this mirror break because Mary Lee decided to kill a fruit fly on the mirror. <laughs> oh, bam! oh, she's come out. Can I tell this story? Thanks. <laughs> and so the mirror breaks and being the good husband I am, she went to the mirror shop, <laughs> you know, and had them cut a new mirror. So she's trying to put the new mirror back in the hole that they, you know, that they measured it for, and one corner won't go. So Mary Lee goes down to the garage, takes this piece of glass down to the garage, and she takes out the Dremel. <laughs> and she's sitting there grinding the glass without any eye protection. Now, this is something you shouldn't do, right? Everybody knows this. Don't do as she did. Do as she says. And she notices that a little piece of glass is coming off. And she notices that her eye, just like that, shuts. And she can observe the time in between that piece of glass from a Dremel comes off the corner of the glass, and when it gets to her eye, that her eyelid has already shut. And this is how God treats his people. We are the apple of his eye. God is very tender with his eye. God will not allow those who choose him to be harmed. He is very precious. You remember when, remember when Saul of Tarsus was on the road to Damascus? And God said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he struck him blind. And so Abram is told, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who merely disses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And of course, that's a prophecy that Jesus Christ would come from the loins of Abraham, that Jesus would descend from Father Abraham, and that the name of Christ would be proclaimed around the world, and that it would be through his blood that you and I would be washed from our sin. And it wouldn't just be limited to the Jews. The nations would see his glory. We'd be a polyglot people more than Hawaii. There would be single and married. There would be male and female. There would be Jew, Greek, Asian, Hawaiian, Howley. And I'll only use that word because it's about me and so I can use it without you all having a hissy fit. But you just think of all the horrible names that every ethnic group calls every other ethnic. Like, for instance, the names Chinese call Mongolians. <laughs> you know, all of us, all of us in Christ have an absolute equality that comes because we've been washed by the blood of Jesus. All the nations will be blessed through Abram if he gets up and goes. And so what does he do? What we read is, so Abram went forth. He went forth. As the Lord had spoken to him and Lot went with him, now, Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. 
Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Morah. Now, the Oak of Morah was a place of um, teaching, a place of uh, oracle. It was a religious site where pagan religions, so like the Druids, all right, trees have always been sacred things. And so this was a sacred tree, right? A tree of oracle is literally the translation. And it says... Passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Morah. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. And you know the Canaanites were wicked, wicked, wicked. If you're at the protest, I mentioned the fact that they sacrificed their little children in the mouth of their god Moloch. And their children, they would burn up to God. They would put it in the mouth of their god and burn their child. And that was just one of the many wickednesses of Canaanites. And it says, now the Canaanite was then in the land. So we know it's a very, very wicked place. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants. So he gets there and the Lord says, to your descendants, I will give this land. Now he knows where God has sent him. To your descendants, I will give this land. So he, Abram, built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. He doesn't sacrifice on the pagan's altar. He doesn't go under the tree and sort of be syncretistic, you know, halfway Canaanite and halfway God. He builds an altar. In the, in the front of their holy place, he builds an altar to the only true God. And then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord. So this is the second one and called upon the name of the Lord. Where he settled is about 10 miles north of Jerusalem. And what he had done is he encompassed the promised land, all right? So he had canvassed the place that God was going to give him, and then he settled. And he settled just outside of Jerusalem, where Jerusalem's location was. And he called upon the name of the Lord. And that's the life of a Christian. That's the life of a Christian. We do not have a homeland. We don't have a fatherland. And certainly not the United States of America. Okay? I hate to break it to you. The United States of America is not a Christian nation. It's a nation of Canaanites. And we don't have families. Yeah, we have families. I know we have relatives. We have extended families. But God is our Father. And so the true family is this church. And if our family doesn't show up at church, they're not our family because we now have brothers and sisters that we'll have throughout all eternity. You know, whenever I talk to anybody who is caught in a major sin, bitterness, um sexual sin, greed, whatever it is. I'm like a honing, homing pigeon. I was just like constantly, so what church did you go to? What church did you go to? So which church were you at? Who were you fellowshipping with? Why? Well, because what is a better barometer of a man's heart than his commitment to the bride of Christ? There is no better thermometer to put in somebody's mouth than to ask them what their commitment to the church of Jesus Christ is. Abram left his family, he left his homeland, he left his father, and he went out and he built an altar and he called on the name of the Lord. And no matter what he didn't have there that he had had back in Haran, he was at home. He was at home. Because he was sacrificing to God and he was praying to God. And brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter whether you're old, whether you're young, whether you're male, female, it doesn't matter what your nationality and race are. If we have chosen to be vagabonds and let loose of the branch like a bird 
and done what God called us to do, and that's very individual. He calls all of us to different things. But if we have chosen to live by faith, then we have brothers, we have sisters, we have mothers, we have fathers. We belong. Because we gather with those who have built altars to God, who sacrifice to God, and who call upon the name of God. Listen, if you choose your degree, your job prospects, if you choose to fulfill the aspirations of your father, your mother, your grandmother, if you choose this life, you will not have Jesus Christ. Because he says, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For the man who will save his life will lose it. But the man who will lose his life for my sake and the sake of the gospel, the blood of Jesus, he'll find it. And you just watch people. And as you get older, you get gray hair, you'll have a lot of people you've watched for decades. And the trajectory is so clear. And the trajectory has nothing about money and degrees. Yesterday, my wife and I were talking about a family we've known for decades. And it's like everything the head of that home does turns to dust. It's like if he touches something, it turns to dust. I can't tell you how many things have turned to dust. His children have turned to dust. His good deeds have been turned to dust. His homes have been turned to dust. Everything is turned to dust. And why? Because this man is himself a cult of one. Everybody on the earth exists to tell him how great he knows he is. Now, he's a Christian. You know, went to Wheaton. You know, fine evangelical but he will not be a vagabond. And he will not deny himself. And he will not call upon the name of the Lord. He calls on his own name. And you say, well, that's a horrible thing to say about somebody. And I say, Scripture's filled with people like that. Don't you know this? What do you think Cain was doing when he killed Abel? (laughs) He was building a cult of himself. Listen, Do not be so precious with yourself because you will be miserable the rest of your life. This is a great secret of life. If you forget about yourself, if you forget about everybody that's hurt you, if you forget about everybody that's failed you, if you don't think your boss owes you anything, if you don't think you deserve a certain GPA, if you're not fulfilling the expectations of your mother... You will be what Martin Luther King falsely promised. Remember what he falsely promised. Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, free at last. That will never come by any political remedy or reform. It comes only from deciding that you have eyes only for him. You know, we sing about that when it comes to love. I only have eyes for you. Right? You know the song, right? Why don't we sing that about Jesus? That's the only eye that Abram lived. Can you imagine how Sarah felt about what Abram did to her? You know? And there's no mention whether Sarah was happy or sad. Because Abram only had eyes for God, and he knew God would brook no competitors. He knew God was a jealous God, and he was going to obey God. And no, Sarah, I'm sorry. I know it's unreasonable. I don't know where I'm taking you. God just said, get up and go. And she says, you've got to be kidding me. And he says, no, God was serious. You're going to take me, and you're going to take a lot on this harebrained scheme of yours, and how do you know it was God? Abram said, 
I'd set my heart on pilgrimage and I'm off. And that's the Christian life. You remember the beginning of Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read it, you should. And he realizes he has this burden he can't bear. And finally, he realizes that he has to run to Jesus. And as soon as he gets out of his house and starts running, you remember what happens. His family comes out. And his neighbors come out and they're yelling at him. You know, they're making fun of him. They're calling him, come on back, Christian, come on back. And he can't tolerate the pressure. And so you remember what he does. Show me what he does, those of you that have read the book. Look at what everybody's doing that's read the book. They've all put their hands over their ears. And what we read is John Bunyan wrote this in jail. He was in prison for his faith. And John Bunyan says that Christian, as he ran from his family and his neighbors, he took his hands, and now do this. Put your hands over your ears, and then yell what he yelled. Life! Life! Eternal life! Okay, let's pray. Father, as we begin a new year, we do repent before you because some of us have not started the path and have been hedging our bets, and some of us, having started the path, have lost our first love. And some of us who are 75 are unwilling to be insecure for you. Father, would you please, in your mercy, give us faith that we will be like our father Abraham. That we will go not knowing where we're going. That we will be willing to live the life of a vagabond. And that consequently, Lord, you'll make us unbelievably fruitful as mothers and fathers, as witnesses on the campus and at work, and particularly when we gather as a fellowship, that we will love more our brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and sons and daughters of the church of the faith than we do our own flesh and blood. But we need you to give us this as a gift because we are weak and our affections have been tuned to this world and not to eternity. And so work in us what is pleasing to yourself, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.